Good morning. I'm Kristen Clausen. Today we'll be reading from Matthew 14, 13 through 21, which can be found on page 820 in the Pew Bible. It's Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Add my good morning. I think I'm good. Hey, uh, good morning. Um, eager to jump into this text with you. Um, I want to talk about a couple things real quick before I do that. Uh, if you look at your bulletin, uh, you'll see we've got a forum today after church. Um, as a church, we uh, are trying to figure lots of things out. But one of the things we're really committed to is to move towards difficult things, even if it's kind of awkward or we're not quite sure what to do. Um, you might go, yeah, we just experienced that in our prayer time. Like we know like awkward silence. Like we're, we're just as a church saying, let's just step towards stuff. So two things we want to step towards. One, in our denomination, uh, last couple of months has been in the news uh, some abuse, not just allegations, but findings in the Southern Baptist Convention. And a month ago, our convention met and they walked through some resolutions and made some decisions. And so uh, we want to be transparent and just tell you how we're thinking about that. I want to answer your questions about that. So we're going to host a quick forum right after the service today, just on our response to abuse in general and specifically what's going on in our convention. We'll talk about what we're trying to do here in our body uh, some resources available for victims, and then just have a conversation about what we long for as a church. So I wanted to ask you to stick around for that. We've let you know that and trying to make a space for you to ask some questions. So um, in a setting like that, where you have people who are asking like policy questions and folks who actually have been harmed, it can be a difficult environment. So we're not going to do live questions uh, at that forum. So your chance to ask a question uh, is to go on your bulletin. There's a little QR code at the bottom of that which sounds way fancier than it really is, but you can submit a question there. And I think we're going to take questions till communion. And then some of our females on staff are going to kind of sort those and then get us in a spot where we can answer those questions. We'll answer every question that you ask. We just may not answer all of them publicly. But uh, my job in this moment is to both ask you to stick around afterwards to talk about this really important issue. And then if you want to voice a question that you think would be helpful for our whole body, you can do that with that QR code. So hope that makes sense. If you have questions Ask them before communion. Um, after that, 
we'll, we can just engage live in the room. So that, that's today. And then next week, you'll see another forum. And so we want to take some time just to engage what's happening in our culture when it comes to abortion and reproductive rights and what's going on in the womb with life. And a few weeks ago, after the Supreme Court decision, I kind of addressed some of that. We were really thankful to be in Matthew 13, where Jesus is talking about the greatest treasure. And we try to orient our hearts around that rather than policies or politics or, or any sort of like vote that might happen. It was a really orienting thing, but we said if that's the last thing we talk about or last time we mention this, it's an utter failure. And so we want to keep talking. We asked you to come and pray with us a few weeks ago. And um, next week, we want to take another opportunity just to talk and answer some questions. I said on that sermon a few weeks ago, I don't think the pulpit is the place for me to tell you how to vote. Um, And actually, I'm really committed to that. I'm really committed not to tell you how to vote. However, my job is to tell you what God's word says about things that really matter, that influence how you vote. And so I'm going to take some some time next week just to go through, like, what does the Bible say about life in the womb? What does it say about coming alongside of the oppressed? What does it say about how we think about rights and culture and government and those kinds of things? I'm going to try to do that in about 10 or 15 minutes. Maybe you've never heard from the scriptures what God says about life. So I'm just going to take some time from the pulpit to do that. And then after that, we'll stick around from the service and just talk as long as you want to, ask whatever questions you have. I want to connect you to some resources if you have some questions for you personally or you have some recovery, you have some places where you've had some loss, and also connect you to places where you can begin to serve and give if you're asking how do we make a difference in our community, how do we have a holistic view of valuing life. So I want to kind of connect you to some organizations and tell you what we're trying to do as a church. So we're going to talk about it for a minute from the pulpit, just about what does the Bible actually say. We'll stick around after church next week for that. And I realize that's not great for everybody, and so we're going to take a risk of like a Zoom call Wednesday night at 8.30, and already I'm going like, I don't know how it's going to work out. But again, stepping towards awkward things, just trying to like make a space where you could ask questions and you could dialogue, and again, you could hear about those resources. So, so that's next Sunday and next Wednesday night. That one will be about issues of life and how we think about reproductive rights, and then today will be about abuse. I mean, those are really heavy things, but they're really important things, and it's the world that we live in, and I'm desperate for you to know that God not just like cares, but has something to say about the world that you live in. We don't just experience God in this room for an hour and a half and then get on with the rest of our lives. Like God has spoken into everything that matters to you. He shapes, he is preeminent over, he has spoken into, he wants to guide you, meet you, comfort you, correct you in all the places of your life. And so as these things are in front of us, we just want to take some time as a church to engage with that. So uh, again, we'll go slow. This won't be the last thing that we do, um, but want to kind of take another step there. And then let me ask one more thing of you. In preparation for that meeting, what I'm hoping is that God is stirring in you dreams and passions and desires to build things and have sustainable things and come alongside of individuals when it comes to justice and mercy in our community. So I want to ask you sometime next week, would you take a day and fast and pray with me, asking God to give us like a deeper burden for who he is, help us see people the way he sees them, and that he would give our body visions and dreams and desires and burdens and initiatives that we can move towards as a people over the next 20 and 30 years that might actually make a difference in our community. We're committed to small steps that are incremental, but they're certain things that will actually bring about real change. And so I just want to ask you to join me to pray that God would stir in us uh, through the gifts he's given our body, the resources he's given our body, what we might be able to do in our community. So would you just take a day, pick a day, it doesn't matter, pick a meal, pick whatever you want, fast with me one day, 
pray with me, and then we'll get together next Sunday, and we'll talk about that specific issue of life as we come into it. I know we've got a vote coming up. Um, again, I'm not going to tell you what to do on that day, but I want to bring us into just asking God to speak to us as a people. Okay, let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thanks that it does speak to every area of our life, even if the particular words or um, issues that are on a ballot aren't found. You speak holistically, and you speak thematically, and you speak with burdens and passions and trajectories and stories and commands, and you tell us what's true. You tell us about your heart in ways that we can actually hear your voice and move towards you. So would you make us a people that long to hear your voice, that want to be instructed by you, that have a deep, deep desire to learn and grow and be changed and transformed by you? And would you do that not just like down the road, do that now? Would you now in the places of our suffering, the places of our confusion, the places of our sin and rebellion, the places of our loneliness and sadness, would you come in this space this morning and speak to us? We need you. We, we say out loud that you are the only one who has authority in ways that will bring life. So we ask that you would help. Open your word. Spirit, speak, we pray. And for those in the room who don't yet know you, who are wondering what the church is about, wondering what you are about, would you speak in a specific way to them this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, we had a vacation a couple weeks ago. It landed at a family wedding in Dallas. And my brother's wife's brother's wife, which I don't know what that is to me. I don't know who that is to me. Uh, she's a wonderful person, but I'm not sure what, that, what to call her. So my brother's wife's brother's wife um, got to kind of come in the room, and she's wearing this black shirt that has five loaves and two fish on it. And it's one of those shirts you're meant to go, hey, what's that shirt about? And so it totally worked. We all went, hey, what's that shirt about? And she got to tell us a story of her amazing husband who, for her birthday, bought her, I guess, like a, a share in the show Chosen, and she got to be an extra in the scene of the feeding of the 5,000. So it's this long story of getting there on buses and 6 a.m.s, and there's some sort of audition you have to do, and they met all these ways you have to dress in certain ways, and she just goes on and on and on telling the story about this amazing day that's like 1,000 degrees in Austin. It's not shot in Israel, actually. It's shot in Austin. I didn't know that. Um, so it's in Austin, which is like super hot, or maybe some outside of Austin. I wasn't listening super close when she was talking, but, but it, was, it was profound what she said. What caught my attention was two things. One, the logistic nightmare of getting like over 5,000 people to show up on time, sit down in spaces, be quiet when they're shooting over the hill, so they're doing all these different scenes. And then the joy she had of just talking about what it was like to be there. What it was, and she was a little, she's a little swoon with some of the actors, I think. There's a little bit of like some of that starstruck stuff there. But, but the idea of just sitting in places and kind of reenacting such a beautiful scene, such an amazing story. Like a story that I'm so excited to unpack for us because it's just like all good. It's just fun. So I tend to be like a glass half empty kind of guy. And so when I can get a text, it's just like, oh, there's 12 baskets left over. This is amazing. Like it's just so fun for me to speak to you an encouraging, thoughtful, beautiful word. And as she's just sharing what it was like for me, I thought about this text and us and wondering like, what would it be like to be there? What would it be like for you just to sit on that hill to encounter Jesus, even from afar, like she's sitting way in the back. I don't think we'll see her on Chosen. I don't think you'll notice my brother's wife's brother's wife on that thing, but she, she's going to be there. She's part of the masses. So whether you're in the very, very back, or you're one of the disciples, or you're the little kid that brings his lunch, 
or the first person to get something, or the last one to get it, or you're the one who kind of sees the full baskets, wherever you find yourself, kind of that story, it would have been an amazing, amazing scene. And so I want this morning just to kind of unpack this thing for us. And I want to put it in context for just a little bit, because there actually is a little bit of sadness. I'm not trying to sneak in my glass half empty sort of thing, but there is a, a sadness there that you see, because in verse 13, we see this call back to the passage before. So look at me in verse 13 of chapter 14. It says, now when Jesus heard this, so if you weren't here last week, that this he's talking about is the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. So this is like a scene that starts in grief. It's going to end in beautiful provision. It's going to end in 12 baskets overflowing. It's going to end in mind-blowing miracles. But it starts out in a little bit of grief. He hears about this loss, and he feels the pain of that, it says. And he withdraws from there on a boat to a desolate place by himself. So let me just kind of put this in context for a moment. Last week, Jimmy preached this text, and it was amazing, actually. He took us a deep dive down into like the history of the Herodians and what all these things would have meant. He kind of put us in the scene, made us ask some really important questions. The text just kind of pushes on us to examine our hearts and ask, what would we have done? And what are we trusting in? And how do we see kind of God and his prophets? But he went kind of down deep into that. I want to go kind of horizontal for a second and put this in context. Remember in chapter 13, Jesus has been giving us these parables. He's teaching us what the kingdom is like. He's helping us set expectations about what it means to follow him, and he's actually correcting us a little bit in those. That ends with this undeniable experience of people hearing the words of Jesus, and they're wrestling with what kind of a man teaches like this. They've heard of his works and deeds, and we're told in the end of chapter 13, those who know him best struggle to believe what he said because he, Jesus, is just too common. Remember, he's just from Nazareth. He's just the son of a carpenter. Remember, he's Mary's son, which we're not quite sure about who his real dad is in that space. Don't we actually know his brothers and sisters? Isn't he just like too common to actually be the one who can fulfill the things of the kingdom? That's the chapter 13. The next scene then goes to a different kind of doubt. Not that Jesus is too common, but he goes to this place of supernatural power. And you see King Herod hearing about Jesus and his conclusion is not that he's too average, too common, but that he must be a ghost. Because Herod's just killed John the Baptist and he imagines now he's being haunted. So on one side you have a view of Jesus that exaggerates his humanity and just says he's just a common carpenter dude from the first century. There's nothing special about him. He had some good ideas and some good teaching, but man, he can't be the Messiah. And then on the other side, you have this exaggeration, almost to like a supernatural, spooky kind of view, where he's not actually worshiping him as God, but he understands there's something about what Jesus has done, and it must be so supernatural, it's more like what you see on like, like documentaries on Discovery Channel, of things that go bump in the night, if you put it in one place and the next morning it's moved, and how do you explain that? It must be some sort of ghost. Herod takes that view of Jesus preferring a ghost story to a gospel explanation of what actually is happening. So that's the frame that's going on. And those two scenes then push us to ask, how are you seeing Jesus? How are you explaining his words? How are you explaining his teaching? What are you doing with his miracles? How do you see him? And what Matthew's going to do is, with that question hanging in the air for us, give us three episodes showing Jesus' miraculous power over our needs, 
over the natural world and over the supernatural world. We're going to see this feeding of the 5,000, and then we'll see Jesus walking on water, and then we'll see him kind of heal the sick in those spaces at the end of the chapter. So, so you see Jesus' supernatural power. Matthew just won't let us get away from this consistent testimony of who Jesus is, but he's making us ask the question, who do you see him to be? which is what all of the book of Matthew is heading towards. The whole narrative is moving us towards a space where you'll stand next to the centurion at the cross of Jesus, watching all the supernatural things happen in that moment, and the centurion saying, surely this man is the Son of God. And you're meant to journey along with all the disciples, all of the crowd, all the Pharisees, all those who are confused, all those who are resistant, and bring your heart into the story and say, how do I see him? Right? If it's the Lord of the Rings, we're always asking, how does this get us closer to Mordor? We're asking in these moments, how does this get us closer to seeing who Jesus really is? It's not just a random story about a beheading of a prophet. It's meant to ask you, how do you see Jesus? That's the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew. So in this space, then, what we see is Jesus in that context is explaining and showing more and more of who he is. And you have questions about that. Some of you don't yet know if the Bible's even true, let alone if you can trust Jesus. You're not sure about your religious wounds and your background and what to make sense of those things. Even as I talk about abuse, you're like, that's not an academic thing, man. That's my, that's my story. And you're wondering, because Jesus fit into this, right? So, so bring all those questions, all those doubts, all those longings into this text and look with me at the way Jesus kind of shows us who God is, who he is, and what he does. Here's the outline I want to follow. I want to just talk about the humanity of Jesus and the limitations of the disciples and the abundant provision of the kingdom. And we'll go, we'll go quick. And I hope we spend more time on that last one because it really is like a glass half full sort of thing. So first this, the humanity of Jesus. It does start a little bit dark. He hears of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, and in sadness, he goes and withdraws from there on a boat to a desolate place. Now this word is a word of wilderness, but it has in, implied in it aloneness, loneliness, some sadness to it. It's not just a geographic location. It has an essence to it. This is a place where you go when you want to be alone, when you feel alone, when there's a kind of sadness there. So Jesus hears about the death of his cousin, and in his humanity, in his compassionate heart, him being fully human and fully God, he's sad. He's sad. And he wants to just go get away by himself, to just sit to pray, to cry, to to remember his cousin, to think about what all this means. And maybe he's thinking about this is like the foretaste of what will happen to him. He knows the cross is coming. He's encountering all of those realities, but he wants to go and get away. He wants to go grieve for a moment. Just stop for a second. That Jesus, the Son of God, the Eternal One, that Colossians says is preeminent over all things, and holds all things together, that he knows what it's like to face loss and sadness and just simply want to be alone to deal with what's inside of his heart, gives you a sense of comfort that he sees you. There's just something about our suffering where we want to know people know what it's like to be us. This last week, I joined one of our members, and we visited a women's health clinic and just heard about what they're doing, and it's an amazing place, actually. Uh, all medical professionals trying to offer alternatives to people who are in unwanted pregnancies and trying to ask, like, is there a way forward for us? And they listen with a ton of compassion and sit and hear the reasons why they feel like they can't keep the child and do they want to keep the child and just have this beautiful dialogue. And one of their hopes is to connect somebody on their staff's story to this person's story, 
to go, oh, you're not married and you're pregnant. Can I introduce you to my friend who was in that exact situation? Oh, you're, you're scared medically for what's going on. Can I introduce you to one of my friends who had that exact situation? And they just talked about the power of having somebody sit who sees your suffering. One of the counselors in our church talked about the importance of having your suffering seen. To see their suffering and to sit in that space, it just means something. It doesn't mean that if you haven't faced someone's exact kind of pain, you can't speak into it. That's, that's too far. But there's something just comforting when you know a person has been where you are. So just stop for a moment. Imagine God himself came into our world. Hebrews tells us for the exact reason to sympathize with your weakness and frailty so he would not just know about it the way a sovereign, all-knowing God would know all things, but to experientially know the suffering and sadness and loss that you experience. The God you're praying to about the things that feel really dark and overwhelming, the things you want to pray about when you're just by yourself and no one could hear you, so you're maybe a little less filtered. That God that you're praying to knows what it's like to face loss and suffering. Just, just hear that. He relates to you, Hebrew says. He comes close to you. And he comes close to you with compassion. Because I love the rest of the scene. The crowds hear about Jesus and they flock to him. Now, again, this is not just a couple of people. This is one that will turn into this huge 5,000 plus person crowd. When he comes ashore, the great crowd comes to him in verse 14. And his reaction is to have compassion on them. Okay, think about that time when you've just faced something horrible. It's been like a week full of a day, and you just want to be alone, and you're trying just desperately to get away from, like, as much as you love your children, you want to get away from your children for a minute. As much as you love your spouse, you want to get away from your spouse for a minute. You just want to be by yourself, and you just can't do it. They just keep knocking on the door. Adrian told stories like our kids, she'd be in the bathroom, and they'd stick their little fingers under the door like, hey, mom, hey, mom. Like, no place is sacred. You just cannot be alone. So in that space, when you feel like, I'm going to explode if I'm not alone. And then you get interrupted. Remember what that feels like for you? You're tempted to go towards anger or anxiety. Or don't you know what it's like to be me? Can't you give me a break? Like we tend to lash out. And because we see God as just like a better version of ourselves, maybe you're tempted to see God when you ask him things that he's like annoyed with you. Like that your stuff is just too small. Like don't, he's trying to run the whole universe for real. You're going to ask about your job or your body or your singleness or, or your sexuality. I mean, really, like of all the things that are going on on the globe, you're going to bring that to him. We almost imagine God's just a better version of us. But in this space, see Jesus hearing their need and their loss, that their desire to kind of, kind of have God meet them in their sadness. He meets that space with compassion. So here's the son of man who himself is sad, who still has compassion on those around him. And it's not just an ideological compassion. It's a holistic compassion. Do you see that he has compassion on them and he heals their sick. He comforts them. He moves close to them and he does something about their suffering. God is not just trafficking in platitudes. He actually wants to meet us in the dark places that are very real and visceral and physical, he comes in his compassion and he actually heals them. We start this little scene that is so beautiful and miraculous with an understanding of the humanity of Jesus. He's compassionate. He has the power to meet your needs. He's not annoyed by you. He actually wants to draw close to you with compassion. Secondly, the limits of the disciples. 
So there's this moment there, and Jesus goes into what he always does to kind of heal and help and to show the kingdom of God, not just talk about it, but to show it. In verse 15, it says, Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, Hey, this is a desolate place. This is that place out in the wilderness, a place of loss, a place of loneliness, a place of sadness. It's the same, same word. And the day is almost done. Would you just have some compassion on these people, send them home so they can go take care of themselves? They need food. It's been a heck of a day. Let them go buy food for themselves. I read this actually not just as the disciples trying to get rid of people, but trying to be compassionate. It's like when my wife at like 1130 at our house and we're doing counseling, she's like, hey, I know like you're on a roll, but it's 1130. Let these people go home. Like, let them get out of here. Like, let's stop talking. Get rid of these folks. Let them, let them get to go, go to bed for crying out loud. It's that kind of deal. I think the disciples are going, hey, Jesus, they're hungry, man. Let them go take care of their hunger. And Jesus' response is to say, hey, why don't you do something about that? Look in verse 16. But Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Okay, all-knowing, all-powerful God knows exactly what's in their lunch bag. And he says, you give them something to eat. And they say to him, hey, man, you know everything. We got five loaves and two fish. And these are not like halibuts. These are like little dried sardines. It's like, hey, man, we don't have a whole lot. Jesus says, and bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples then joined Jesus in distributing this miraculous provision to all of the crowds. All right, the disciples see a need. They acknowledge their own limitations. And Jesus invites them to participate with him in this miraculous display of the kingdom. There's something about that for us that's really beautiful. It is really small what we have. And all of us individually, and even all of us collectively, I mean, our church is a pretty, pretty small thing here. Right? There's not much about us that's impressive. We're like a five loaves, two fish kind of church and God says to us hey I see what you have let me take that let me bless that let me break that let me give that back and you go distribute that there's something about even in our limits it's not limiting who God is and what he's done he doesn't need anything from us actually he could just do this ex nihilo from nowhere but he chooses in his mercy to involve us in his kingdom work He wants to take our limitations, and there's something about what we learn about his love and his compassion and his miraculous power when we bring these little feeble gifts, and he does something mind-blowing with them. The disciples don't have the capacity to meet the needs of those around them, but Jesus does, and he provides for the needs through the small gifts that his people have. That's encouragement for us. So when I say, hey, join me in fasting and praying that God might do something inside of us, I'm not talking about amazing things that we're going to come up with. I'm talking about five loaves and two fish kinds of things that we'll offer to Jesus, that he'll then take and miraculously multiply and do something that will last way past us. That's the way the kingdom actually works. Remember, it's mustard seeds and leaven. It's really, really, really small things that grow over time. This is a reinforcement of that. Think, think five loaves, two fish as a mustard seed. Like just 5,000 people. Like, like my brother's wife's brother's wife wouldn't even be able to see what he's holding from the back of where she's sitting, and that's going to feed everybody with abundance. No way. You can't even see a mustard seed. Like I'm holding one right now. No, I'm not. But, but if I was, maybe I am. Maybe I'll put it in my pocket. You, you'll never know. But you can't, even, you can't even see it. It's so insignificant, you can't even tell. 
and got to something mind-blowing, like 5,000 people. Amazing. So his compassion, his humanity, acknowledging our limits leads to his abundant provision. So he takes these little feeble gifts, and they're so small, and it would almost be like comical maybe if it wasn't so devastating because like that's what they're going to eat. So it's not just like, hey, we had this extra stuff. This is what they've got. The 12 of them are going to share and maybe give Jesus a little bit of this. So you're going to, 13 people are going to take these five little cakes and these two sardines. Like for them to give that to Jesus, not knowing what he's going to do, would be lost for them. It would be sacrifice for them. In the kingdom, the kingdom advances. Jesus says, when we die to ourselves, when we lay down our life, when we give up what we have, that's how the kingdom works. The kingdom economy is rooted in sacrifice. The currency is sacrifice that God takes and miraculously blesses. So they, they with great loss and maybe fear or sadness, you can just see one of them like licking his lips like, man, I was so looking forward to like a third of that one cake that was all, okay, Jesus, we trust you. Take this. And he does take it. Look back in verse 19. He tells people to sit down on the grass. Which some commentators talk about Psalm 23 here the great shepherd that makes us sit down in green pastures. The shepherd's going to do something now miraculous. He's going to have us walk through the valley of the shadow of death in ways. He actually is going to set a table in front of us, the scripture says. He takes him to sit down. He takes these little loaves. He takes them. He looks up to heaven and he blesses them. Then he breaks them and then he gives them. That same pattern we'll see multiple times in the New Testament. When Jesus does communion, he'll use that pattern when he talks about what's going to happen in the kingdom, he uses that pattern. On the road to Emmaus, when he's, he's, he has hidden his identity and the disciples aren't quite sure who he is, he holds up a piece of bread and he takes it and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it and their eyes are open and they see Jesus. This is a messianic pattern. To take, to bless, to break, and then to give. And the disciples then take it and they give that away. And the simple point is just so beautiful. It ends not in scarcity or barely meeting their needs. All 5,000 plus get fed and filled, and there is tons left over. Not just back to where they started, right? This mustard seed and this leaven multiplies out. It's way bigger than when it started. Now they've got 12 basketful of food left over. A beautiful image of provision, so I struggle with glass half empty kind of stuff. It's just the way I'm wired. I'm sorry. I promise I have fun. I laugh and throw jokes. But like I just kind of tend to run in this kind of sober place. What struck me this week is this is not like even glass half full. This is glass filling up. This is the kingdom of God advancing and growing and spreading. This is small things being multiplied. It's not just a positive story. And you could see it either way. It's the kingdom of God growing and advancing. When Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom, the glass started filling up. And the scriptures say one day it will be full to overflowing. Jesus says, I'm going to celebrate this meal with you again at the great feast when all of this is done and I've fully accomplished and restored everything. We're going to sit down together again. We're going to eat a meal and it will be a party. It'll be like a marriage feast, the scriptures say, where there's an abundance and all of us are satisfied, and not just barely getting by, not just having enough to sustain us, but tons left over. There's a beautiful comfort, correction, admonishment here for us as we think about the way God cares for his people to see there being an abundance to his provision. And we have to stop. 
this text has to make sense to John the Baptist as well, who lost his head. So when we talk about provision, we're not simply saying, oh man, give a little bit, get a whole lot. It's going to be great. Actually, Jesus says, if you follow him, what? You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You'll actually probably face some sort of death. So there is a real physical nourishing that happens here. And the kingdom of God is also aimed at something much, much deeper. But I don't want to do a bait and switch and go, hey, he doesn't really care about your physical needs. He only cares about your heart and your spiritual needs because he cares about both. There's this physical reminder here that what matters to you in the hunger of your physical body, Jesus has the power to meet in abundance. And sometimes you're beheaded. When we talk about the blessings of the kingdom, we talk about how God sees you and what he wants to do to to multiply and to live a blessed life. It has to make sense to people from like Hebrews chapter 13. We said in chapter 4 of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is this sympathetic high priest. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, did I say 13? In chapter 11 of Hebrews is this hall of fame of faith. All these celebrities of faith. I mean, you have Abraham and you have amazing people that like we read about in the Old Testament. And by faith, they did all these amazing things. And then it ends in verse 32 of chapter 11, after this long list of celebrities. And he says this, what more shall I say? For time will fail me to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and the guy I can't pronounce and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong in weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts, in these desolate wilderness places, and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised to them. Because the glass is filling up. And they died before it was fully filled. And the promises that God met to these people who lost everything is the same kind of promise that he's demonstrating in this moment when he does multiply and meets their need. Now come into us the mystery of the kingdom. But what I want you to understand is these are not two different roads you could go down. Either you get nothing or you get everything. Actually, what I think Jesus wants to do is show his ability to provide for us so that in those moments where we feel deep, deep loss and sadness, where John the Baptist is facing a sure beheading, he has the provision that he needs in that moment to be faithful, to see God as strong, to sustain his heart and his faith in that place. Friends, I know a lot of you are really suffering. I know a lot of you, as I'm talking, you're like, man, that's not my story. Like, I don't have 12 basketballs. I don't even have a basket. I don't have anything. Everything just feels dark and lost. So as I prayed for us this week, and I I really do want to focus on the point of the text, which is this beautiful blessing. I want to understand even the way Jesus starts this thing out with sadness and loss, that a lot of us feel sadness and loss. Next week, I want to slow down and just talk about how do we deal with the desolate places? What do you do when it just is dark? 
What do you do with the the provision of the kingdom and the abundance of the kingdom in places that just feel like loss? I'm going to talk about that next week. But it won't be like an either-or thing. I want you to understand the kingdom of God, it's a both-and thing. The God who provides in this moment is the God who is with you in the dark places, providing abundantly what you need. In his book, Future Grace, John Piper talks about when we look at like a martyr or somebody and we go, man, there's no way I could ever do that. I don't have enough faith for that. He just stops and says, right, you don't need the faith for that in this moment, but when you do, he will give it to you. The God of the scriptures is the God who walks with people, sometimes over huge banquet feasts and sometimes in utter darkness and alone, always providing what his people need. And those places of darkness are not the absence of his provision. The same abundance that he gives physically in this place with this bread is available to you spiritually and emotionally with the presence of God in the spaces of your suffering. And many of you can bear testimony to that. One of the things I love about this church is the way that we've stewarded our story and our suffering. Many of you know deep, deep, deep loss and pain and abuse and hardship and neglect and doubt and struggle and tears and pain. And in that space, you've experienced God sustaining and not just barely getting you by. You've experienced sustainable, miraculous, abundant provision, even if everything around you was caving in. I want to talk next week about how do we sit in desolate places. But what we're saying this morning of the beautiful provision gives you like hope that that's the way God is. And if he could do this in this moment physically, then surely he can provide for you spiritually. He can sustain you and care for you in those places where you feel overwhelmed. Even if, as I'm talking, you go, hey man, my faith is like five loaves and two fish. I mean, it is like so small. I mean, there's 5,000 hungry things knocking on the door of my heart, and all I've got is a couple loaves of bread and two salty, dried out sardines. I don't know how I'm going to make it. And in that space, even your little faith, God Step into our world who understands compassionately and beautifully what you're going through, who moves towards you with a compassionate heart and miraculous power, wants to take even that small little faith and not just sustain you with it, but multiply it, provide for you, nourish you, show you his abundant presence. I pray for your physical healing when I hear about your sickness. It's the first thing that I do. And I also pray that God would feel close to you in the middle of your suffering. I think he wants to do both. And there's mystery in how and why and when he does what he does. But it's not that one is scarcity and one is abundance. Both of those, the glass is filling up. In all those places where it's like your singleness that just feels overwhelming, when it's a difficult marriage, when it's generational sin and addiction, when it's the job loss, when it's the fixed income and you're not sure how you're going to make it, when it's the diagnosis and the terminal illness, when it's the relationships that just keep hounding you and overwhelming you and keep abusing you, those spaces where you just feel like, I can't do this anymore. In that spot, the kingdom of God is advancing. The provision of God is multiplying. He's taking these small little things, even your small little faith, and he's maximizing that as he takes it, he blesses it, it's broken, and he gives it in ways that actually meet and supply all your needs. Jesus is showing us the value of the kingdom, and he's doing it in ways that give us encouragement and hope for the spaces of loss and need. I want to talk specifically about that next week, but, but not in light of like just to cancel this out, or it's not an addendum to this. It's because this is true that we have the courage to talk about where is God 
in those desolate, dark places. He wants to meet your needs in beautiful, profound ways. Okay, so as you look at this text, I think the, the meaning is really clear. It's really simple. It's a great children's story. I mean, your child who could uh, hear this could understand that God is the kind of God who meets our needs and kind of blows our mind and how extravagant he is. And there's a couple of things that are going on, maybe just behind the scenes to us that would be very present in the first century that I think gives it even more meaning. So I thought about with the graduation season that just happened, like when you're at a high school graduation, I mean, it's a big deal for a kid to graduate high school. But sometimes you're at those graduations and somebody will walk across the stage and the whole place will like erupt. And you're like, man, what's going on with that situation? And it's enough just to graduate. Like, that's a great thing. But when you hear people's stories sometimes, and so you learn, hey, this kid is the first one of his family to ever graduate high school. You're like, well, that's like, same deal. It's a graduation, but it's like a bigger, it's like a bigger deal. And then you hear, hey, it's an immigrant family. They don't, they don't even speak English. And for this kid to graduate is massive. And then you learn this kid has a, a disability, a learning disability. And so he's had to fight his whole way to graduate. And you go like, man, this is a massive, amazing, beautiful story. And you hear that he finished top 10% of the class. And you go like, man, yes, this is amazing. All right, graduation's enough. But the more you learn, sometimes you go, dude, that is phenomenal. What's going on in this text is not just an amazing story with a lot of bread, with a bunch of people on a hillside. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the promise-keeping God who showed himself strong in Exodus when he delivered God's people with the Passover meal, provided for them manna in the desert, who walked them through the Red Sea. The next scene is Jesus walking on water, not by accident. Matthew is showing us not just an amazing story, which by itself is just beautiful, man. It's encouraging. It will sustain you. It will bless you. But to know deeper than that, what you see is Jesus standing in these spaces on a hill where Moses would have given the law and giving bread the way God gave manna through Moses, even then foreshadowing to the Passover, which is where God delivered them from slavery, this meal that they had that Jesus will take that Passover meal and will use for communion to tell New Testament believers, do this in memory of me, my sacrifice, my provision, my my covenant-keeping faithfulness, my promises that I made to you that are filling up that you can trust over time. There's a lot going on in this text. It is every first century Jew would watch this scene and would not mistake all the foreshadowing and the meaning that's going on in this. Oh man, for a long time we watched God and we heard stories about him meeting our ancestors' needs in the wilderness with manna. And it was just enough to get by that day. And here's now this one claiming to be the Messiah. who doesn't just give us barely enough. He multiplies it so many more times. There's something about this one that isn't just barely keeping the promises to kind of clear his name. He's abundantly providing for you. And maybe you look at the cross of Jesus and you see that as like a five loaves, two fish thing. Here's just a carpenter. He's just a dude in the first century. He dies a martyr's death. It's no big deal. And yet that sacrifice God will take and use to change the world. Something so common, something that happened all the time in ancient Rome. In that space, it's something that seems really small, maybe to our modern eyes, to now see that God flipped the world upside down and kept his promises in that space. Because Jesus will walk through the same pattern in chapter 26 when he sits down with his disciples in the upper room and explains that he's going to die on their behalf to make a way for them to be rescued and forgiven and set free. And he's going to give meaning to this meal. And he's going to say, hey, the next time I take this with you, it's going to be when the glass is all the way full in the kingdom. 
There's hope in the way Jesus takes this space that starts with scarcity, it moves to abundant provision, and it ends in God making all things right and new. I know there's darkness, I know there's sadness, but do you have hope? Would you clip in to the promises of God as you're kind of repelling down into the dark places of your life and your soul? This God is the one who's with you. He's the one who promises never leave you or forsake you, and he promises to accomplish everything he set out to do in your life. You can trust him. He's good. And what he did on the cross, as common as it seems, was enough to actually rescue and save you. It's more than you thought you needed. He does something more beautiful than you imagined to actually rescue not just the kingdom, not just the people, but your forgiveness of your sin. To actually make you right with God, to atone for all the stuff inside of you, all the rebellion, all the places where when you lacked faith and you were not sure if God was there and you acted in ways that actually took matters in your own hands and you hurt yourself and other people, he died for that. He died for the places where you didn't have faith to trust him and you did something that you shouldn't have done. He died for that, to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free and actually providing for everything that you need. I think the story is so beautiful, and it's one that I want to mark us as a people. I want us to see God in this space, and I would love us to be a people that see the glass filling up. Even maybe this morning as you come to take communion, would you have that imagery in your mind? This little cup that we celebrate each week of the the blood of Christ that's been shed is is filling up. It's enough. It's sufficient for everything that you need. This broken body represented in 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 the bread of Jesus, it's broken in ways that actually multiply and nourish you and sustain you. So communion is a reminder to God's people that he's the kind of God who provides abundantly for what they need. All who are trusting Christ, I invite to take communion. What we do here is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be servers over here in the, the front two aisles. There's also gluten-free over here to my right, your left, and some small individual packets if that's more comfortable for you. But if you claim the name of Christ, if you're looking to his provision to be the thing that makes you right with God, I want to invite you to come and take communion. If that's not who you are, if that's not your story yet, if you're not yet ready to trust him, there's prayers in the back of this bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray and ask for his help. You just sit in your seat and pray and ask God to speak to you. This meal is for those who are trusting him. You're welcome to do that this morning, but if you're not yet ready, would you sit and pray? And for those who are trusting, come and take communion and let the abundant provision of God um, nourish your heart. Let me pray for us and we'll take communion. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are. Thanks for all that you've done. Thanks for taking limited things like this and maximizing them. Thanks that your death on the cross is enough to save the world. Would you fill the room now with faith that you can feed, you can nourish, you can provide physically and spiritually what we need. Help us now in this space to celebrate who you are and what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take communion and then we'll sing together.